We'll hear argument now on number 98-1960, Cortez Bird Chips, Inc. versus Bill Harbert Construction Company. Uh, Mr. Bromberg. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case presents a question of statutory interpretation, specifically whether the special venue provisions of the Federal Arbitration Act are exclusive and therefore preclude application of the general venue statute to requests to confirm, correct, modify, or correct, or vacate arbitration awards. As the vast majority of courts and commentators to consider this question have concluded, the answer to the question is no. The FAA's special venue provisions are permissive in nature, and they supplement rather than supplant the general venue statute. This conclusion is supported by the permissive language of Section 9 and the lack of any restrictive language in Sections 9, 10, and 11. It is supported by the context in which that language is used and also by the overall structure of the FAA. It is independently supported as well Mr. by the presumption. Mr. do you think that the word may in Section 9, 10, and 11 must be interpreted the same way? Does Section 9 mean exactly the same thing that 10 and 11 mean, in effect, in the use of the word may? No, Your Honor. Um, the reference in Section 9 um, is connected to an application uh, for a, um, a confirmation order. In Sections 10 and 11, uh, the word may is not clearly connected to such an application because there is no reference in 10 and 11 to an application. What is important, though, is that Section 9 is clearly uh, a permissive provision. Well, it may be permissive only because it's conditional. I mean, it, it reads, if no court is specified in the agreement of the parties, then such application may be made to the United States court in and for the district in which such award was made. Uh, you really wanted them to say, then such application must be made? I mean, the, the writer could think that, that that would be a command to make an application. Surely you don't have to make an application, do you? Your Honor, I think that is a, uh, that's correct as far as it uh, pertains. So to wouldn't that explain the, uh, the, the may? It's a conditional may. If no court is specified, then such application may be made. Well, Your Honor, um, the word may usually connote some discretion, and you're suggesting that uh, the discretion is to um, not bring an action. And right. that is a possible interpretation. There you are. There goes your, your, your may argument. I mean. Well, Your Honor, this Court has, um, <clears throat> has interpreted may, of course, to, um, to indicate discretion. But isn't there one case that doesn't do that? Isn't it uh, it's the Radzenauer case? The words were, may be had. This was in reference to venue for suits against national banks. And the Court treated that as an exclusive venue provision, even though the words were, may be had? Uh, Your Honor, uh, that's correct. Uh, Radzenauer did um, apply uh, prior decisions of, of this Court. But the national bank um, provision... Uh, I would suggest it's very different from the provision that is before this Court, because it was clear that Congress had a purpose to protect a particular party by limiting venue to a particular um, district. And it is, I think, important to note that the uh, provision at issue there, which, of course, has since been uh, superseded, dealt not only with um, venue in federal courts, but also with venue in state courts as well. There's a curiosity about the procedural history of this case, and I wonder if you could uh, 
address it. And that is, as I understand it, the circuit, the 11th Circuit, was relying on old Fifth Circuit precedent, which was since changed in the Fifth Circuit. Is that right? That's correct. And so the panel was stuck. Yet you didn't ask for an end bank so that the new 11th could consider the question afresh in light of what the current Fifth Circuit uh, has held. Yes, Your Honor. The, the panel had held that the uh, uh, that the, the prior Fifth Circuit decision controlled, and we did decide to uh, to file a petition for certiorari uh, rather than seeking rehearing on bank. Even though most of the circuits go in the go your way. Uh, yes, Your Honor. Um, five of the circuits have have gone have interpreted uh, these venue provisions to be permissive in, in clear holdings. Two have suggested that in dicta there are three circuits that have adopted a restrictive interpretation. Uh, Justice Scalia, to get back to, uh, to your question, uh, we think that a permissive interpretation of the FAA's special venue provisions is not only supported by the language of these provisions, and although it may be possible to read them otherwise, we do think that the most natural reading is a permission um, to use uh, different venue statutes. Uh, but you also have to look at the context in which these provisions were, uh, were enacted. Um, as we indicate on page 14 of our opening brief, where Congress has intended special venue statutes to be restrictive, it has frequently, though not always, used explicitly mandatory or restrictive language. Moreover, permissive interpretation is consistent with the structure of the Federal Arbitration Act. If a restrictive interpretation is adopted, the Federal Arbitration Act would not provide for enforcement of arbitrations that are conducted abroad. However, as this Court indicated in the Shirk case, the FAA, as originally enacted, was intended to apply to such arbitrations. As a consequence, a restrictive interpretation would create a gap in the venue uh, created by the statute. Can you tell me, is it, is it always crystal clear um, which district the award has been made in? If, if, if the arbitrators meet in several different cities and their offices are in different parts, is it always clear where the award was made? Your Honor, I am aware that there is some litigation on that question. Um, I must admit, though, that I am not familiar with it. Uh, if that is true, does that help or hurt you in your interpretation of the statute? On, on the one hand, it means that there's perhaps multiple. <laughs> it seems to me it would help you. I think it does, because I think what uh, respondent has argued is that their interpretation better fits with the policies underlying the Act, uh, because it would eliminate um, any questions about the proper venue. Um, and would therefore be more consistent with the speedy and efficient resolution of disputes. In this case, it was not the parties, but was the American Arbitration Association that specified a place for the arbitration. Is that so? That's correct. Um, the petitioner objected to the, uh, to the location that was chosen by the American Arbitration Association. And, in fact, they filed this action in the district in which they would have preferred to have the arbitration conducted. The, the parties did stipulate for the application of Mississippi law, and yet, although they might have, they didn't provide for a forum for the enforcement of the award. Uh, that's correct, Your Honor. And I think that, that brings up one point, that one difficulty with the restrictive interpretation that respondents have suggested. 
um, under respondent's interpretation, the parties can only agree to a venue if that pertains to an application to vacate and it is in an arbitration agreement, because that is the only type of foreign selection clause that is specifically referred to in the FAA. Um, so they would construe, for example, Sections 10 and 11, which do not contain any specific language concerning form selection clauses, to exclude such clauses. We would suggest that a permissive interpretation would better fit with the purposes underlying the Act for two reasons. First of all, it would allow parties to agree to litigate in the most convenient venue. Now, there would be a difference between applications to vacate and other applications. Applications to vacate would be judged under Section 9, uh, which provides uh, an absolute um, <clears throat> mandate that form selection clauses be enforced. Other form selection clauses would be enforced under the general rule that governs form selection clauses that this Court announced in the Bremen case. Applications to vacate would No, you, you must have misspoke. I, I may have misspoke, Your Honor. Applications to confirm would be under 9. Applications to confirm would be under 9, right. and applications to correct, modify, or vacate right. would be judged under the general rule, which governs form selection clauses. Furthermore, under permissive interpretation, the parties would be able, after an arbitration, to look around and determine what is the most convenient venue. Under respondents' restrictive interpretation, because Section 9 refers only to form selection clauses in arbitration agreements, the parties would not be able to do so. This would conflict with the purposes underlying the Federal Arbitration Act in two ways. First, it would prevent the parties from choosing the most convenient venue. Second, it would prevent the enforcement of an agreement of the parties. And this Court has indicated that one of the primary purposes of the Federal Arbitration Act is to vindicate the parties. But aren't aren't the parties going to often be disputing which is the venue that they want? One wants one and one wants the other. They may, Your Honor. Um, and in that situation, I would suggest that a permissive interpretation would also be the more reasonable and sensible one, because it would allow for transfers under 1404A when a, a venue that is selected is inconvenient. Respond- but what about the, the race to the courthouse problem? If you have multiple venues, then you could have what happened here. One files in Mississippi, the other files in Alabama, where if you say the only place you can go, barring your agreement on some other place, is the place where the arbitration occurs, and you don't have the race to the courthouse problem. Well, Your Honor, I think that a restrictive interpretation would solve some, but not all, of that problem, because jurisdiction to enforce the FAA is concurrent with the state courts. And I don't think that Sections 9, 10, and 11, which refer only to the United States District Courts, would apply to state courts. As a consequence, a party that was interested in evading a restrictive interpretation of Section 10, for example, would simply file their action in state court rather than in federal court. Is there an argument to be made uh, as with respect to convenience that if there really is a mutually convenient venue, the parties will have selected it? And if they have selected it, the scheme of the statute is that having selected it once, that should be the venue for all times whenever any issue on the merits is being litigated, whether it be litigated before the arbitrator or litigated later on on a motion uh, to, to vacate or to modify. Is, is, is that, would that be a sound argument? Uh, Your Honor, I think that there are many situations in which that argument would not apply. Uh, parties will agree to uh, 
arbitrate in distant locations that they would find it inconvenient to litigate. Um, it is far easier to arbitrate. Because, what, they want the arbitrator who lives there, is that? They may want the arbitrator who lives there. They may be trying to accommodate the convenience of witnesses, um, neither of which may be involved in a post-arbitration proceeding. They may also be more willing to accommodate the convenience of each other. Um, well, they, they may not trust the courts of that jurisdiction, although they're willing to trust an arbitrator who's selected by the parties. That is quite possible as well, Your Honor. I would also add that um, a party who decides, for example, to uh, conduct an arbitration at the hotel airport in Dallas or in Chicago um, may, be, may be unwilling to litigate in those uh, districts because they don't want to retain local counsel from those districts. So there are many reasons why um, a venue that is convenient for arbitration may prove to be inconvenient uh, for future litigation. I would also add that it is possible that parties may want to consolidate um, a post-arbitration proceeding with another pending litigation between the parties. Or they may wish to um, file a single action which would enforce an arbitration and also allow them to levy against property um, of the other party um, or seek ed- uh, execution in the residence of the other party. Now, it would, it would not be the consequence of your interpretation would it, that if the parties agree in their arbitration agreement as to where litigation concerning the arbitration award will be conducted, that will govern? It would not be. It would not be. Would it be? No, that, that would be um, with, uh, I think, two caveats, Your, Your Honor. Um, one would be um, an arbitration uh, form selection clause would only be absolutely enforceable uh, with respect to an application to confirm. Uh, well, that's, of course. Uh, that, that, that was mainly what I had in mind. Section 10, right. even if you had an agreement, would allow an, an order to vacate to be brought in the district where, where the uh, award was made, whether or not the parties uh, uh, agreed to another district. Isn't that right? I think that's correct, Your Honor. And I would suggest that there, there is a sound reason for that. Um, one, of the, uh, ration, one of the justifications for vacating an award um, is partiality or corruption of arbitrators, also fraud. That may involve uh, the testimony of recalcitrant witnesses um, from the district. Um, parties, when they are making form selection clauses and arbitration agreements, can't foresee that the other party is going to resort to fraud. As a consequence, they should not be forced to litigate in a district where they cannot uh, subpoena necessary parties. Can a defendant waive proper venue? Under a permissive interpretation, I think they can. I mean, generally speaking, I mean, I, I sue you in a place where the venue statutes uh, do not allow me to sue you, and you simply make no make no defense. You're you're willing to have it there. Uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, I think that's the import of this court's decision in the Nearbo case. It's generally the case that when you venue is a highly waivable thing, uh, in the pecking order, subject matter jurisdiction is not waivable. Personal jurisdiction is, but it's not easily waived. Venue is highly waivable. That's the way it works generally, isn't it? Your Honor, I think that's correct, but it's not clear to me that that would be the case under the restrictive interpretation that respondents have suggested for the reason that it's unclear under their interpretation why Congress would restrict applications to vacate to a single district. 
if Congress intended that such applications be decided in one district and one district alone, I would submit that it is not clear that uh, consent to uh, venue in a different uh, district would be allowed. But under your interpretation, Congress uh, uh, also, you, you, you admit that 10 is exclusive, don't you? That 10 is exclusive, Your Honor? Yeah. Um, they make it that, no, I guess not. You, you, you would say that even a, a request to vacate may be brought under the general venue statute as well. Yes, Your Honor. Which uh, is the suit that you brought, is the suit to vacate. That's correct, Your Honor. And the reason that we reach that position, Your Honor, is that we think that Sections 9, 10, and 11 have to be construed together. Um, as every Court of Appeals that has considered the question has concluded, they must be interpreted in tandem so that they are either all restrictive or all permissive. And in our view, since Section 9 is clearly permissive, Sections 10 and 11 have to be construed as being permissive as well. Now, this interpretation is also supported, as I said earlier, by the structure of the Act, by the venue gap that would result, and also by the uh, unexplained uh, distinction that would be created by a narrow interpretation between Sections 9, 10, and 11 and the Federal Arbitration Act's other special venue provision in Section 204. We also think that a permissive interpretation is independently supported by the presumption that special venue statutes are supplemented by the general venue statute. This presumption, which courts and commentators have found implicit in this court's decision in Suarez, is based upon Congress's historical practice. Historically, Congress has used special venue statutes in order to expand, not restrict, the venue available under the general venue statute. Moreover, as I indicated before, where Congress has intended a special venue statute to be exclusive, it has normally used explicitly restrictive or mandatory language. This suggests that in the absence of such uh, restrictive or mandatory language, a special venue statute should be interpreted to be supplemented by the general venue statute. And this presumption is supported by an important pragmatic consideration. There are hundreds of special venue statutes in the U.S. Code. If all of these venue statutes were interpreted restrictively, then the general rules that Section 1391 attempts to create would be subject to a patchwork of arcane and perhaps unintended exceptions. As, yes, Your Honor. May I ask you, what, what happens to the authorities conferred upon the Court by Section 11 if the suit is not brought in the court specified by Section 11. Section 11 gives, uh, gives the district courts uh, powers that I am not sure a district court somewhere else would have, namely where there was an evident material miscalculation of figures or an evident material mistake. Uh, the, uh, the court can modify or correct the award where the arbitrators have awarded upon a matter not submitted to them or where the award is imperfect in matter of form, not affecting the merits. Uh, Your Honor? Do you think any United States court would have that authority anyway? I think, Your Honor, that uh, — yes, Your Honor, I think they would as and why did they say it? of Section 11. I think — Why did they say it, then? I think Section 11 has substantive uh, provisions, and it also has venue provisions. And the substantive provisions after this Court's decision in Southland, I would suggest, have to be read broadly to apply to any court that is — Even a court under 1331? Wow, Hmm. It's not what it says. It says uh, the United States court in, in and for the district where the award was made may make such an order. 
And you're saying we should read that to say, moreover, any other U.S. court can make that. I think, Your Honor, that uh, this Court should read the reference to uh, the United States Court in and for the district wherein the award was made as an allusion back to the standards in, in Section 9. Uh, there are other places in this statute, which this Court said in uh, Marine Transit uh, is an ambiguously drafted statute, where um, certain words are used to refer to more complicated uh, contexts. Well, I'm uh, sure it does refer back to Section 9, but Section 9 only applies to a certain court, the court in the district where the award was made. Uh, Your Honor, now, you say Section 9 is not exclusive, and you can certainly bring the suit in another court. That's fine, but Section 9, even if you refer back to it, only refers to the court where the award was made. I, I think that it, it's one of the problems with your interpretation. I don't know what you do with the substantive provisions of Section 11 if, if you sort of extend them to all other courts. It seems very strange to extend them to all other courts. Now, maybe maybe they don't say anything. Maybe any court would have that authority anyway. I guess that's probably your best, uh, your best argument. Your Honor, uh, I, I'm not suggesting that this is a uh, perfectly clearly drafted statute. Uh, but I would suggest that the scenario that you are, uh, are posing would cause certain problems. The, the first and foremost would be it would require piecemeal litigation in certain cases. Where there is a form selection agreement that is enforceable under Section 9. Now, my scenario that would do that is yours. You're, you're the one that would allow suit in various courts. Uh, no, if suit could only be brought in this court, you'd, 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 you'd have those, those powers. Your Honor, actually, I would suggest that the — In the place where your parties agreed on I'm sorry, Your Honor. It always could be brought where, where the parties agreed to have it brought, which might be different from this provision. Under our interpretation, yeah. that would be correct. Well, that's true. And, uh, Your Honor, I would suggest that the problem that, uh, Justice Scalia, the problem that, uh, that you're identifying is a problem with the restrictive interpretation that respondents have suggested. Because under their interpretation, where there is a form selection clause that is enforceable right. under Section 9, you may have to bring motions to vacate and motions to modify um, in one district and motions to confirm in another. I guess we can decide that, that issue in a, in, a, in a later case and be treated to this whole thing again. Right? <laughs> um, Your Honor, I'd also like to address one argument that uh, respondent has made, and that's that their interpretation uh, by posing a rigid and restrictive rule would serve the purposes of the Federal Arbitration Act. Um, as I have already suggested, um, I think that uh, the, the value or the benefit of that rule is significantly undermined by the fact that uh, there is concurrent jurisdiction in state courts uh, for federal arbitration um, proceedings. Uh, I would also suggest, however, that there are costs to a rigid and inflexible rule. It would require piecemeal litigation in certain cases. Um, it would also prevent agreements on the most convenient forum uh, from being enforced. It would force litigation in certain cases to be conducted in inconvenient forum because no transfers under 1404A would be possible. Um, you talk about concurrent jurisdiction in state courts, Mr. Bromberg. Uh, uh, does the Federal Arbitration Act, in, in, in terms, give the state courts concurrent jurisdiction? Uh, well, Your Honor, I think that is a, an issue that uh, this Court has, uh, has debated long and hard um, in Southland and its, uh, its progeny. Um, I think that Southland does find uh, that uh, the Federal Arbitration Act applies, at least in certain provisions, to state courts. Yes, certainly substantive provisions in Southland were held to apply, but what, what, what about provisions to vacate awards and that sort of thing? 
Well, Your Honor, certainly um, actions to vacate, some actions to vacate, must be brought in state court, uh, because as this court recognized in Moses H. Cohn, the Federal Arbitration Act does not provide for independent uh, federal subject matter jurisdiction. As a consequence, a case that was between uh, two parties resident from the same state or that otherwise uh, did not satisfy diversity jurisdiction could not be brought in federal court. Even though it was subject to the Federal Arbitration Act? That's correct, Your Honor. Uh, as a consequence, some actions, at least, to, uh, to vacate, uh, modify, uh, or correct arbitration awards will have to be brought in, in state court. Um, now, there is another problem with the uh, respondents' interpretation as well. Uh, according to their interpretation, in 1925, when Congress passed the Federal Arbitration Act, it intended to exclude application of the general venue statute. At that time, however, the general venue statute basically provided only for venue in the residence of the defendant. And respondent has failed to suggest any reason why Congress would have wanted to prevent uh, applications to confirm or to vacate or modify to be brought in the residence of the defendant. Finally, Your Honors, I would suggest that their interpretation would complicate the arbitration process itself because it would make parties less likely to reach uh, compromises um, and accommodations in the arbitration process when they are determining where there are location, where the location of the arbitration should be. That question, um, as it stands now, is often quite contentious. If that were given the added significance of determining where future litigation would be conducted, parties would be less likely to reach compromises. And I think that's particularly true for parties such as Petitioner, uh, who is from a rural area in Mississippi. Um, he may be willing to agree uh, to accommodate the convenience of arbitrators to conduct an arbitration in another state um, in a, at a major airport um, that has a, has a hub, um, but he would be unwilling, or at least less, less willing, to conduct an arbitration there if he knew that any subsequent litigation would be conducted there. In sum, Your Honors, I think that a permissive interpretation is supported by the language of the FAA, by the context in which that language is used, and by the structure. It is also supported by the presumption that special venue statutes are supplemented by the general venue statute and by the policies of the Federal Arbitration Act and the more reasonable and sensible nature of the rule that it would create. There are no more questions. I would like to reserve any remaining time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Bromberg. Uh, Ms. Wagner, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, certainly the sole issue in this case is interpretation of the venue provisions under Sections 10 and 11 of the FAA, but those sections cannot be read in isolation to determine the question of whether this venue is exclusive or non-exclusive. The best way to tell what Congress or what the drafters of the FAA had in mind when it put this statute together is to compare Sections 9, 10, and 11 with other provisions of the FAA and to see how they compare and contrast, and also to compare Sections 9 with the different language of Sections 10 and 11. Uh, looking at Sections 9, 10, and 11 alone, or particularly 10 and 11 alone. Now, where will we find these? Is it in the appendix to, to the petition research area? I'd like to direct your attention particularly to uh, Section 4 of the FAA. We have cited the 1925 version of that section in, 
in, on page 12 of our red brief. And then the, I'm sorry, the modern version is on page 12 of the red brief. You the say, you, is, is it set out in Hike Verba there? I'm sorry? Is, are the words to section 4 set out at page 12? Of? In page 11 of the, um, I'm sorry, page, page 11 of our brief cites the, uh, the language of the original 1925 version, I believe. And what that says is that a party who seeks to compel arbitration, in other words, a pre-arbitration type of proceeding, um, such a party may petition any court of the United States, which, save for the arbitration agreement, I'm paraphrasing, would have jurisdiction under the Judicial Code, which is now Title 28, of the subject matter of the suit arising out of the controversy between the parties. The modern version of Section uh, 4 is, is, is basically to the same effect. It substitutes courts of the United States with district courts, but essentially it is to the same effect. That section, in sharp contrast with Sections 9, 10, and 11, provides broad venue. Or it does one of two things. It either provides extremely broad venue, uh, concurrent with subject matter jurisdiction, as the petitioner argues, or it expressly incorporates the venue provisions of uh, Section 1391 of Title 28. Now, if, as we say, it expressly incorporates venue, then by doing that in Section 4 and, re- and rejecting that language in favor of much more restrictive language in Sections 9, 10, and 11, it is clear that Congress did not intend to incorporate those well, general Well, why would Congress provisions. want to have done such a thing? I mean, a normal case, A sues B. They're both residents of the Middle West, different states. They're in federal court in, in Iowa. You know, and, and the judge there says, go to arbitration. I'll, I'll, I'll suspend this suit. Go arbitrate. You promised to arbitrate. And now you're saying, when they finish their arbitration, which happens to be at the association's headquarters in New York, they cannot come back to where they started their original suit in the middle of the argument and get this either enforced. Worse than that, if they happen to agree in their agreement, by the way, we're always going to be able to sue each other in Iowa. Always. Always. Even though they agreed to that, on your interpretation, too bad. Although you could go to Iowa to have the thing confirmed, you have to stay in New York to have it vacated, modified, etc. I mean, I do not know why any human being would want such a thing. And so I cannot think of what Congress could have had in mind by buying your interpretation. But I can easily think what they would have had in mind the other way. Justice Breyer, you've asked certainly a compound question, and I'll try to answer um, in, in, in turn. First, why would they want to do that? We're talking about venue of an action that challenges an arbitration award, much like you would have a, an appellate review. And you may have a case where the parties are litigating in Alabama, and for circumstances that have changed, perhaps they really don't think Alabama is the best forum, but there it is. They can't go appeal in California because they think that's a more convenient forum for their appeal. So why would Congress want to provide for that review process to be in the same form? It is analogous to an appeal. And, and that gives the district court some power over the arbitration and over the proceedings because they're in the same location. In fact, just — But if it were analogous to an appeal, then why did Congress provide 
in Section 9 that it could be any place the parties pick? Because Section um, because Section 9, Your Honor, is not really analogous to appeal. Section 9 is not a review process. It's simply a process of certifying and reducing to judgment. But in a Section 9 proceeding, wouldn't a motion to vacate, modify, be compulsory counterclaim? It would have to be brought. Yes, it would. And in that instance, certainly, you would end up with, if you were in two different if the, um, if the parties agreed to a form for confirmation that was different from the location of the arbitration award, you would have the proceeding then going forward in another location. And that, that would occur in that instance. I must so, say, so I'm that's troubled by your, your analogy to appellate review in a normal litigation. Of course, an appellate court in Alabama can only review trial courts in Alabama. But I don't, that doesn't at all apply to you might pick an arbitrator in Hawaii just to — you want him out there, but that doesn't mean you want to litigate in Hawaii. That's right. And, and, and of course — Or that any — it would only be Hawaii courts that would have any particular ability to review the matter either. So I don't find your analogy very persuasive. My, my question, Justice Stevens, was uh, — well, my answer was directed to the question of why would they want to do this? And I think that provides us an answer. And, again, it's just guesswork as to why. Would they, they have wanted this situation where the parties say, we absolutely agree, absolutely agree, that when it comes time to confirm this award, it will be here at our home in Hawaii. And they write it right in, we love Hawaii. And now it turns out, because the arbitration takes place in New York, they're willing to go there once in their lives, all right, that, that when it comes time to confirm the award, right back to Hawaii. But should anybody have a complaint about it, want to modify a comma, vacate it or whatever, they have to stay in New York. Now, now I, I, I mean, why would somebody really want to do that, to take one example? The answer to that that question uh, relates to the fact, Justice Barr, that this is a venue provision. It is not a subject matter provision. And as you have pointed out, Mr. Chief Justice, venue is waivable. Venue is always waivable, and there's nothing about this particular statutory scheme that would keep venue from being waivable. So we have a situation where if everybody agrees that Alabama or Mississippi or Hawaii is a better forum and they continue to agree to that after the arbitration is over, then a court could be empowered through that is waiver. That, I don't know how that works. Does that normally happen where, say, I'm a rather alert judge, which may be contrary to fact, but I'm sitting there with a, with a case in front of me, and I happen to know I'm in Alaska, and I also happen to know there's no venue in Alaska. And suppose I were to say to one of the parties, I, I, I'm surprised here you happen to be in Alaska. Uh, because the statute here says there's no venue. Now, now, does that normally happen? And they say, oh, don't worry about it. They certainly can do that. But does that, is that normal? I don't know that I mean, it's, I don't know that it's normal, Justice Breyer, for the parties ever to agree on what is the best venue, which is part of the problem here, is, is that the idea that the parties after the arbitration is over are going to get together and say, hey, let's agree. I mean, if they but do the that. But the form selection clause would come before that. It would come in the agreement to arbitrate, wouldn't it? Just as there was a here a choice of law clause, but not a choice of form clause. 
It wouldn't occur after the arbitration. You would expect it to be in the agreement itself. The agreement can provide a form selection clause, but the parties could alternatively agree after the arbitration is over as to an appropriate form. And again, precisely as Justice Breyer has uh, pointed out, the Court can say, well, do I have venue? And the parties can say, well, Judge, we'd rather be here. And well, yes, Ms. Wagner, your answer, I think, if I understand your answer, it, it, it assumes an answer to Justice Scalia's question about the significance in Section 11 uh, of apparently empowering that but the Court particularly mentioned in Section 11 with the authority to, to, to modify an award. And I take it your, your answer assumes that uh, any Court uh, with jurisdiction uh, would have the authority to do that if the parties otherwise waive the venue, uh, any, uh, otherwise waive the, the restrictive venue provision. Is, is that right? I, I would agree that if venue is properly conferred by um, waiver uh, or, uh, in the case of Section 9, by a forum selection clause, um, that, the, that the Court would have the power then to do whatever later comes up in that case. Once a case is filed, in an appropriate venue and an appropriate forum, that court could carry forward with the rest of the case, uh, whether it's a Section 10 or 11 proceeding, a Section 9 proceeding, mm. uh, that court could keep that case. So although Section 11, as Justice Scalia points out, seems to envision uh, proceedings by the same court uh, or, or in the same geographical location as the arbitration, uh, that wouldn't necessarily always be the case because of these principles of waiver and because of the principle of retention of jurisdiction once the court has the case. Um, similarly, what, what's the source of the power of a, a federal court to modify awards if it isn't Section 11? Uh, the um, the Section 11 empowers a court to uh, to modify an award but the provision as to which court may modify the award is one of venue. So it's really a compound provision in the sense that it grants power to the district court but specifies venue for exercise of that power. So, so in this respect, you're in agreement with your colleague. He, he reads the statute the same way. I am on venue, you disagree. But in, as venue, far as the substantive authority of the court, you both agree that the statute is, shall we say, severable? That I do agree with that, Your Honor. Yes. I'd like to, though, um, just make one point, particularly about Section 4 that, that I was uh, discussing previously, and that is that we have said that Section 4 expressly, um, expressly incorporates the venue provisions of 28 U.S.C. 1391. And, and the point I'd like to make, since it was addressed in the, um, in the reply brief and we have not had the opportunity to respond, is that it is, is the question of whether Section 4 is really referring to venue or whether it's referring to subject matter jurisdiction. And I would just point out uh, that Congress oftentimes, and certainly in the early part of the century, uh, has used the word venue when it really means uh, has used the word jurisdiction when it really means venue, or has used the word venue, has used the word jurisdiction broadly to include concepts of venue as well as subject matter and personal jurisdiction. So, by its reference in Section 4 to um, 
to venue being concurrent with jurisdiction under Title 28, we say that that means that venue under Section 4 uh, incorporates the venue provisions of Title 28 as well as uh, subject matter jurisdiction. May I just ask this question about Section 4? That covers everything. That, that applies to an, a suit to compel arbitration. That's correct. Yeah. Now, obviously, you couldn't <coughs> authorize venue for such a suit in the place where arbitration had taken place. That's correct. So that you, you could read this broadly and then say you have the additional situation if an arbitration is out in Hawaii or someplace, it is also permissible there, and it would all fit together, it seems to me. Now, this is sort of the background rule of venue, any place within this group. Then you say, but now when there is an arbitration and an action on force that couldn't have been covered by four, you need an additional venue provision to cover that contingency. Justice Stevens, certainly Congress could have done that, but they didn't choose to do that. The the language of Section 11. Well, that's the issue. But it doesn't seem to me that Section 4 adds any enlightenment on the issue. The question is, how do you read the other section? Do you read it with the background principle that venue, of course, is available in all these places, but in addition, you can have venue where you couldn't have had it for a a suit to to compel arbitration? We say that that Section 4 has to be compared and contrasted, that the language of Section 4 has to be read alongside with 9, 10, and 11 to see that they provide different uh, venue. Section 4 says venue is, you simply refer to the general venue statutes under Title 28. Section 9 says for these proceedings you have just this single specified court, 10 and 11, to the same effect. Uh, there's nothing in 9, 10, or 11 that suggests that venue applies under any other section of the act. But you've already said it isn't a single court because you could choose to have the award confirmed by agreement and then the modification would be a compulsory counterclaim. That's correct. And so it would be in a place other than the place where arbitration uh, was held. But one question that, that I don't think your presentation responds to is the default venue, the place where a person could always be sued, even before the expansion of 1391, is where defendant's home base is, where defendant resides. Now, why in the world would Congress want to cut out that most convenient place for a defendant to be sued and say, no, you can't sue a defendant at the place that would be most convenient for a defendant? Let me, pr- let me draw another uh, analogy, Your Honor, with respect to that question. And that is a, a simple case of two corporations having a dispute arbitrate their dispute in Alabama. Let's say they're both incorporated here. Here, I'm from Alabama. But they're both incorporated in Alabama. Uh, They both have their principal place of business in Alabama. The dispute arises in Alabama. Um, The arbitration takes place either by agreement or by uh, decision of the arbitrators. takes place in Birmingham, Alabama. One of the parties is dissatisfied with the award and chooses to challenge it under Sections 10 and 11. That party, then, could file the proceeding in Alaska to challenge that Alabama arbitration proceeding if the defendant had a place of business there or if the defendant did business there and satisfied the requirements of personal I wasn't asking about every place where the defendant does business. I was asking the defendant's residence. The, the one and only defendant's residence, that would be Alabama in your hypothetical. I'm not asking you why Congress might have had a reason for wanting to cut out every place where the defendant is doing business. 
But why would it want to cut out the one place where the defendant resides, which on your theory it does? Of course, under modern venue statutes, the, the, um, a corporate defendant could have multiple residents, which is the hypothetical that I've presented. But even under old law, well, there I might be is, one resident. Is it still a distinction between residing, which would be place of incorporation, principal place of business, and other places where the defendant is doing business? Under the old law, there might have been just one residence because the residence definitions have come since, since that time. Under the original FAA. Doesn't but 1391, do we have 1391 someplace? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, the modern version of 1391 is, in, is on page one of the blue brief. But getting back to, uh, to your question, Justice Ginsburg, why would the uh, why would Congress choose the default to be where the arbitration occurs when the defendant's um, when the defendant's residence may be elsewhere? For the simple reason that there has been a determination uh, of, uh, of, a, of an appropriate form as part of the arbitration proceedings, either by agreement or by the arbitrator, that is presumptively convenient, and very simply. Uh, The FAA wanted to streamline, the Congress wanted to streamline arbitration proceedings by providing that not every decision that an arbitrator makes should be subject to second-guessing. But why do you say it is presumptively convenient? Because that was sort of the the, the point that an earlier question of mine was aiming at, and I thought I got a very good answer to it. It it may be very inconvenient, uh, but there may be a good arbitrator there. Uh, or it may be sufficiently convenient if we're talking about arbitration, uh, but totally unacceptable if we're talking about uh, a willingness to submit to the jurisdiction of the courts. So I guess, I, I guess I'm really asking you two questions. Why do you think it is presumptively convenient? And number two, why is presumptive convenience the only consideration uh, in, in trying to rationalize this? First, uh, the arbitrator or the arbitration association is charged with responsibility for selecting a convenient forum. And, again, Congress, Your Honor, uh, was trying to take those kinds of mundane considerations away from a position where they would be second-guessed by later court proceedings. Um, the, the, the arbitrator's discretion in many, many matters is not subject to being second-guessed and revisited in court proceedings. The, the uh, review well, is very, very narrow. The place of the arbitration will not be second-guessed, but that's, that's not the question we've got. But the decision that the arbitration is the most convenient forum for the parties can carry forward with respect to later review. And, and, and second, to answer, to answer your question, the, uh, certainly the, the, the uh, defendant's residence may not be the best form for review for a number of reasons. Since we're talking about proceedings under Section 10 and 11, which is review and which is a challenge to the award, uh, it provides that, for example, for fraud or for some kind of misconduct on the part of the parties and the arbitrator, that that award could be set aside. The convenience not only to the defendant uh, or to the party who is trying to uphold the award, but also to uh, witnesses, to the arbitrator, him or herself, um, all of those considerations of, um, 
of convenience of, of everyone involved come into play in making a decision uh, as to uh, where the arbitration should occur. And again, that can carry forward. Wagner, why, why shouldn't we just apply, you know, we, we, we have expressed a, a presumption in some of our cases that where you have a special venue provision, we will presume it to be supplementary and, and not displacive unless it is made clear that the opposite is intended. I do not consider it at all clear here that the opposite is intended. Why don't we just apply the presumption so that Congress will know in the future when you adopt a special venue provision, we're, we're assuming that that simply is cumulative. It, it is added to the normal venue provisions. Why isn't this an absolutely perfect case for applying that presumption? Justice Scalia, the, the presumption has not been stated in those general terms. Uh, the, the presumption that this Court applies is that if uh, a specific venue statute is not intended to be exclusive, that it can be supplemented by later changes in general venue statutes. Oh, if that's what we said, it, 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 it's, it's, it's utterly but, meaningless. But there's a if it's not intended, If it's not intended to be exclusive, it's not in, in exclusive. That's a very significant uh, piece of judicial uh, but that is what the cases say. And there is I think a not. I think, I think they express a presumption that when Congress enacts uh, a uh, venue provision, it supplements uh, extant venue provisions unless it is clear uh, to the contrary. I have uh, two responses to that, Justice Scalia. And if we haven't said it, why shouldn't we say it? There is a countervailing presumption that specific <clears throat> controls over general, that if, a, if Congress specified venue or uh, had a specific venue provision for a particular act, particularly one that's incorporated as part of an overall legislative scheme that but creates. Mr. Biden, that's hard to apply here because the particular could be any place under the choice of forum clause. That's But you concede, and then the vacation comes in as a compulsory counterclaim. So it's it's the most general. It's anything, anything. It, it is, uh, Your Honor. It is venue, certainly, uh, and, and certainly. To, although this provides for exclusive forum, it is simply venue and can be waived. But the statute, by default, in the absence of such a, a post-arbitration agreement with respect to 9 or 10, the default is whatever the arbitrator has decided or the parties have decided is the appropriate forum for the arbitration proceedings. <clears throat> and the second... If you in doubt, uh, and all the canons are pointing in different directions... And the language is somewhat ambiguous. I guess you could try to do what seems to make the most sense. Well, and in, in your particular case, you've said it does make sense uh, to say that where Congress, uh, what Congress intended was, well, where the parties don't decide it. And you say we're going to arbitrate in Alaska. Do everything in Alaska. Now, that does make sense. And they pointed out about six ways in which once we go down that road, it's actually going to produce all kinds of inconvenience and mix-up and, and uh, division of cases and all sorts of ways, which suggests their way makes quite a lot of sense. And I don't want you to leave without responding to the various uh, points that they've made as to how this is all going to get mixed up if we take your route because of the cases being divided. Remember, the other example was the example of an instance where somebody compels arbitration they suspend a case. They go off somewhere to arbitrate, and obviously they'd like to go back to where they started. Which they can do because if the they agree. 
Well, they can do once that proceeding, uh, Justice Breyer, is filed under Section 3 to com- uh, under Section 4 to compel arbitration, or under Section 3 to stay a pending lawsuit. That court has the case, and if that court retains jurisdiction of the case, then that court can uh, handle later proceedings because these are, again, simply venue provisions. But uh, getting back to, I guess, an earlier question, I'd like to complete the answer. Um, And that is, uh, why can't we just assume uh, that the general venue statutes, why can't we just apply this liberally? Well, first of all, venue is not something that you simply apply liberally out of some overriding policy consideration. You have to look at what was intended, and you have to apply it as it was written. And second, uh, the Section 10 and 11, particularly in contrast with Section 4, simply cannot be read to leave that door wide open. And I, and I also would point out, as we have in our briefs, that looking at the history of this section, looking at the broad venue provision that Congress rejected out of the New York statute in favor of very limited provisions, it's clear that they wanted to, to have this to be a limited venue provision. I'd like to also raise one other practical consideration, and that is a number of arbitrations in, in modern day are consolidated, where there may be multiple claims, multiple awards, uh, case, you know, A versus B, C versus D, A versus D, you know, where, where, where the arbitrators are trying to make a number of decisions among a number of competing interests. If venue is open, is wide open, what you're going to have is uh, challenges and motions under Section Isn't 9. Isn't that what 1404A is meant to accomplish, though? And district judges recognizing that one action is better than five or even two will say, okay, this is a place of proper jurisdiction and venue, but we're going to transfer to that other so that all the arbitrations will go for. Isn't that a typical use of 1404A? Certainly 1404A can be used, but the point is that, that FAA was intended to streamline, to simplify this procedure, to avoid post-arbitration arguments about uh, about procedural and matters of discretion. But, but in, it's in the cases that you put where arbitrations are often held in multiple cities, multiple venues, with arbitrators who themselves are from Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles, it's not clear to me where the award is made. Courts that have addressed that issue, Justice Kennedy, have said that where the hearing takes place is, is venue for purposes under nine. They have multiple hearings in multiple cities. Then presumably any of those cities would be an appropriate uh, forum. Uh, if the award is made in a number of different places with, uh, with different aspects heard in different places. In light of the comparison between Section 4 and Section 9, 10, and 11, also the contrast between 9 and 10 and 11, there really is only one reading that can be had of this statute, that the intent of the Congress is clear, and uh, the, um, the, that the default provision for venue, the, the provision that will apply uh, in, in the cases where there is not already a pending case or whether there is not post-arbitration agreement uh, is going to be where the uh, arbitration award took place, where the hearing took place. Uh, Congress has determined that that is presumptively a proper form and that it simply should not be subject to later litigation as to whether there might be some, you know, arguably better uh, form for that proceeding. Treating it like as though it's a, a uh, an appeal process, it's a review process where, for example, the arbitrator might be subject to discovery. Witnesses might have to be called as 
uh, with respect to allegations of fraud and the like. Your answer that if a motion to compel arbitration is brought in one court, that court could retain jurisdiction cuts against your now answer that this is like an appellate proceeding. That's right. But again, presumptively like an uh, appeal. Answering the question of why this Congress would do it, it seems that that's the way they viewed it, that they, that they viewed this as something which naturally ought to flow upstream through the same location. But, um, but certainly there are circumstances where that would not necessarily follow, and that would be cases where there is jurisdiction that has been lodged in a particular court or where the parties simply waive uh, venue um, objections. Uh, but looking at the statute as a whole and looking at a comparison with uh, this statute with the broader language of the New York statute that served as its, as its model and that Congress rejected in favor of this very closely de- delineated provision for venue, uh, it's very clear what Congress had in mind. And as this Court has held, um, has, has, has often held, venue is not something that this Court can simply apply in a way that seems convenient or any Court, but it is a matter of um, staying. Thank, thank you, Ms. Wagner. Uh, Mr. Bromberg, you have three minutes remaining. Uh, Your Honor, uh, unless uh, the Court has questions, I have no further argument. I have just one question, and that is, let's assume that you're, you're right, that Mississippi is a place of proper venue for this litigation. There is the general rule of the first to file is the one that goes to be filed goes forward. But that's not um, an ironclad rule. So could it be that the Alabama District Court would say, well, we're not going to defer to the, to the first? So it, there's nothing oblig- that obliges the Alabama court to give way, is there? Well, Your Honor, um, we have not had the opportunity to uh, — to brief that, that question. Um, but I would add that uh, — I would point out that there are um, what I think several difficulties uh, with uh, a response like that. The first is uh, I think that it is unfair to require a party um, like the petitioner who has objected to arbitration being conducted in a particular place to force them, whether through a uh, um, an absolute rule, as respondent is suggesting, or through a presumptive rule, uh, to litigate post-arbitration proceedings in that uh, that district. Uh, the second thing that I would add is that some of the problems that I'd pointed out about um, a restrictive interpretation of uh, sections 9, 10, and 11 would also um, be created by a presumptive rule. Um, in particular, it would burden the arbitration process itself, um, the pre-arbitration sparring in some cases over where an arbitration should be located would be complicated as much by a presumptive rule as it would be by a, uh, uh, an absolute restriction. Thank you, Mr. Bromberg. The case is submitted. Uh, we'll hear.